Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIV LPFM in New Orleans. We are Radio Null HIV with programming dedicated to human rights and social justice. WHIVFM.org. We honor independent voices and all wars. WHIV is a community radio station, and we provide a platform for independent voices with your support. All WHIV hosts and DJs are volunteers. We do this service for the community because now more than ever, we need a radio station that's dedicated to human rights and social justice. So please consider becoming a monthly member of WHIV by setting up a recurring donation of any amount. You can donate $1 a month. That would be great. If you have means to do more, that would be great as well. All donations are tax deductible. So simply go to whivfm.org and click donate. Uh, thank you for your continued support. We are not a radio station with a mission. We are a mission with a radio station and all wars. And before we go on with the show, uh, <clears throat> let me just also say that Rise St. James, the Poor People's Campaign, and the NAACP present a moral revival. Rye St. James is a grassroots organization in Cancer Alley in Freetown, St. James. And you'll hear from keynote speaker, Reverend Dr. William Barber, and learn about the Formoso Plastics Plant approved for construction near an elementary school. The revival is Tuesday, January 29th. That's tomorrow from 5 to 8 p.m. at the West Bank Reception Hall at 2455 Highway 18 in Vachery. My name is Mark Allendary, and you are listening to No Matters, Health is a Human Right, and it is great to have you all here. Thank you to Lynn Drury and Sharapa for their great show once again. It is an honor and pleasure to bring on our guest for the hour, somebody that I have been uh, very eager to, uh, to get on air and to, uh, and to interview for some time, and that's uh, Seth Bloom. Seth Bloom is a former member of the uh, of the uh, Orleans Parish uh, School Board. He was uh, a board member from 2008 to 2016. He was actually president of the board from 2014 to 2016. Seth also ran for city council member and was the first openly gay person to run for city council. Seth now has a law firm, which is Bloom Legal. With more information, can be found at bloomlegal.com, which focuses on criminal defense and personal injury. Seth also has a podcast, which is called Big Easy Law, and it is a pleasure and honor to have you uh, with us today. Seth, thank you so much for uh, being on air. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to my first appearance here on WHIV. Yeah. So I know we've been trying to connect for a number of months, so uh, I really appreciate getting on here. It's really a pleasure having you on air, and it's a really timely time now just because of uh, some recent uh, occurrences that have happened with respect to the school board. And so I guess just kind of jumping off, there's a lot of things for us to talk about. I know that, sure. you know that um, when you and I had first talked about you coming on air, um, it was to talk about some more personal issues, and we'll get to that in a little while, but um, because I think that has a lot of um, potential for further conversation, especially as it comes to criminal justice. Uh, but specifically, when we're talking about uh, the school board, there was, uh, you know, you were a, a key person, obviously, to talk to. You were in the news recently. Uh, so maybe can you just walk us through kind of what happened with the school board recently and, and what went down? Yeah, all of a sudden, I haven't been too super involved in politics since I lost the election for uh, City Council School Board B. And 
November of 2017. But all of a sudden last week, I got sucked into a bunch of media stories uh, about the possible election of Leslie Ellison to be president of uh, the Orleans Parish School Board. Most of the members on the school board I served with, uh, I believe five of the seven on there I served with. So I know these people. This is an election that is um, a board election. So this isn't like a citywide election. So it was the seven members of the board got to decide who the president was uh, or is going to be. And John Brown, who was the current president the first two years now, uh, is going to stay on as a third term. And I think that was the compromise. Um, Certainly, there were some other members on there. And, and the reason why there was a compromise was because of why? There, there, was, a there was a difficulty with some of the views that Miss Leslie had? Yeah, Leslie and I personally had an excellent working relationship. And she's a, a hardworking uh, person and overall was a good uh, school board member. However, she has some very problematic views, in my opinion, and I think problematic to the majority of New Orleanians. And those are extreme social conservative, Christian social conservative statements, uh, most of them attacking the LGBTQ community. Uh, and they just seem antiquated. And we can go into some of those topics. I mean, look, this is the school board. Uh, we're not deciding Roe v. Wade on it. Right. So, But anytime a social issue would come up that she could dig into, for instance, sex education, a lot of the anti-bullying legislation. I mean, this was low-hanging fruit. This was something that even conservative moderates or even, I think, conservatives would say, you know, this is inappropriate. Right. But she's positioned herself politically, and she's run for state representative before as an African-American woman who is a right-wing social conservative. Right. So and, and also a, a Democrat as well, right? And a Democrat, and a known I Democrat. Yeah, and, and you, you not views that are typically, you know, if you had described somebody like that, I would have just assumed, given our natural, given the state of our of our politics right now, I would just assume somebody was probably part of the GOP or, or was a Republican. It, one would think so. <laughs> yes. and, and uh, But, but I, I think, honestly, a lot of Republicans probably have a lot more moderate views than she has, especially towards social issues like this. And she put herself out there. It wasn't a negative comment on the board or two. And she went and testified uh, before the Louisiana legislature on um, a number of occasions explicitly for um, laws that would be detrimental to the uh, the LG. LGBTQ community. Sorry, I'm getting right. tongue tongue twisted. They keep adding letters, so it makes um, it harder for me. And and <clears throat> I know we had mentioned it. We had talked about it uh, a moment ago. But um, you had a work. You had a good working relationship with her, and you're a person who's been openly gay for some time. And so right. there was, you know, you didn't. You were president of the board at right. one point as well. I mean, and so you had a term where you were the president, and there was nothing that you felt. From from that side, it was views that were being imposed downward on, onto potentially uh, school children, basically. Yeah, and I certainly you know opposed her in any of those uh, times where these kind of social issues came up. But having said that, you know I'm an extreme moderate. I like to be a centrist. I want people to get along. Obviously, what's going on in Washington D.C. and all the news 
uh, entertainment channels. They're not even news anymore. Yeah, no, thank you very much for saying that. News they entertainment. Are, they and, are entertainment And that's channels. whether the liberal one or the or the conservative one or the one that's supposed to be in the middle that's now supposedly the liberal one. There's right. very little news. In fact, I saw something on PBS the other night, and I was like, wow, I haven't had anyone tell me the news in a while. Right. Well, if I could just also do a quick little plug for sure. WHIV. Uh-huh. Every, every morning from about 7 to 1, 7 a.m. to 1, there's always news, and it has a strong progressive uh, perspective on it but I I, uh, I like to think that it's non-biased and that it actually tells the truth we we actually talk about climate change from the position that climate change is actually here gotcha. and it, you know we talk about sure. guns from the position that guns actually do kill people yes. and they are very harmful for yes. things uh, we talk about criminal justice as if like things changes need to be made uh, we talk about women's uh, autonomy to make decisions about their own bodies not whether or not it should happen but it needs to be that way and right. so that, that's that's if you listen if you tune into WHIV those are the things that you'll say so I'll well, just put that one little I'm on board there. I'm on board for all those topics Super. but um, uh, so one go ahead I guess just as far as dealing yes. with her on a personal level you know I, you know it's like uh, Tip O'Neill said at five o'clock you know politics are over and you can go have a drink with your political uh, a long time and that's a long time ago <laughs> right so I kind of still have that philosophy and that's not to say that uh Leslie and I were, were beer drinking buddies. Not at all. Right. But I felt that, you know, many of the decisions we were making were fiscal decisions, uh, were decisions about, uh, you know, good management, best practices for uh, a school system, a changing school system. And I thought she had, you know, from a systemic and a uh, organized angle, she was good at that. Right. You know, I think she, right. she did a good job. She cared. She was involved. Right. But when it came to a few of these issues, it was... It was it was scary. So while we're talking about schools, can I can we just talk about just I'm going to pick your brain about two topics about schools. One is about um, abstinence only slash uh, comprehensive sexuality education, uh, and then I was going to talk to you about kind of this changing landscape about schools. So one, as an HIV physician, as an infectious diseases doctor, or what I oftentimes will say would be an STI, sexually transmitted infections uh, disease um, specialist. I uh, I would like to see because the science behind comprehensive sexuality education is mm-hmm. it's kind of like it's it's kind of like saying that gravity doesn't exist. Like if I were to you know hold this drink and let it go, it's not going to hover. You know, and and the the uh, philosophy behind abstinence only education to me is the equivalent of that. You know, you try and, it's like trying to tell a bunch of kids to kind of plug their noses and close their mouths and tell them not to breathe. It's just it's, it's not. It's not going to happen. So without like, you know, giving us like I'm not trying to kind of get into your head as to, you know, the the do's, the don'ts and the personal conversations that were had. What's the overall philosophy that is taken when you're sitting on the board and you're trying to manage, you know, you know, you you yourself, I don't know, because you and I have never talked about this. You yourself may think that abstinence only is a good thing or comprehensive sexuality education is a good thing. You may have your own beliefs, but how does that translate itself through a school board where we are still kind of stuck, if you will, with an abstinence-only sexuality education where it seems like the country is moving very, very, is shifting very much more into a comprehensive sexuality education. So it's a big question, so take whatever angle. Anytime an issue about sexual education came up and was usually the majority of the board, and I would hope I was a leader on this issue, was for as a progressive policy as that could possibly be implemented. And this was where something, and Ms. Ellison and I did disagree, uh, you know, severely over. Um, you have the state of Louisiana, the city of New Orleans, 
the city of Baton Rouge with some of the highest HIV rates in the country. You have New Orleans and, uh, and I believe Baton Rouge with some of the highest levels of teen pregnancies. Yes. So this we is have the highest rates of syphilis. We have the highest rates in the country of uh, adolescent HIV. We have the highest rates of, of gonorrhea. So you can you can bury your head uh, in the sand yes. <laughs> or you can take actions. And, and just to show you how progressive I am, I'll tell you, in communist Cuba during the 80s and early 90s, when they saw, and that's a Catholic country and communist, so it was a little bit confusing, but when they saw his do Castro's daughter, who was in charge, who was a doctor in charge of, you know, their equivalent to like the general surgeon of, uh, surgeon, surgeon general. general, excuse me, of, uh, of Cuba, as soon as they saw this issue, there was no issue about race or sexuality. It was like, whoa, we've got to deal with this. And they were able to, this is way before antivirals and all the prep and all this kind of stuff, were for able HIV. to contain for HIV, were able to really provide excellent sexual education so communist so do you, cuba doing it better than new orleans do you know what the rates are of of transmission in cuba they are the lowest the lowest in the northern hemisphere lowest in the western hemisphere and that is 100 percent correct you're absolutely right they attacked and 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 dealt with hiv in such an aggressive manner some people might say slightly heavy-handed. I, 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 you know, for me, I, I appreciate the way that they did it. They basically pulled people from their communities. They put them into, um, into kind of like a, another. They put them. They temporarily relocated them to an HIV community, and they taught you about HIV. They taught you about safe sex. They taught you about how to take your medications once medications became available, and then you went back out into the community. So you were there just for a little period of time, but in doing so. You were inculcated. I think that's the right word I'm looking for. You were indoctrinated, or you right. were taught how what HIV is, what it means, and how to live with it successfully. And they have the highest rates of success of HIV. And I just want to make it abundantly clear that I do not support uh, Fidel Castro or the dictatorship of uh, communist uh, Cuba. But I do agree with that their HIV policies uh, were so progressive that it is something to look at. And, and you're sure. the expert on that. Sure. So I, I completely agree. But certainly some of these, you know, and at the same time, the juxtaposition to that was in the 80s. And, and I don't need to give you an education on, on HIV, but, you know. I mean, Reagan wasn't allowing the proper funding. There was there he were, didn't even say the word HIV until his last year in presidency. <laughs> exactly. So we were in complete denial. Total. Medicines weren't coming out quick yes. enough. Yes. Education wasn't coming out. And we've all, you know, at least I've seen and read a lot of, you know, reports about, you know, what I consider my people, right. especially gay men, sure. went through um, right. in the 80s and the 90s. Right. And, and I'm old enough. I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I'm old enough to have seen what it did. And, and look, people should know, too. That, uh, you know, I've had two friends or acquaintances that have passed away from HIV in the last three or four years. Right. So Nobody should be dying of HIV or AIDS anymore. Right. But when we see it, it's 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 quite tragic and it's a failure of the system. I don't know about your friends particularly, but the ones that I've seen die recently have been because the system has failed uh, has has failed folks. I mean, we do make it, you know, I, I write grants every year to have HIV available, uh, HIV medications and HIV services, even for the most indigent of individuals. And, and folks uh, who are unable to access that are, um, uh, the, the system has failed them. And it's it's tragic on multiple levels. I, I so, agree. And it's, it's just, and you know, so I don't think, you know, to me it's low hanging fruit. Certainly there'll be objections from extreme uh, religious uh, parts of the community, but I think the, the, the a huge portion of the U.S. today, and and certainly 
in the uh, blue dot that New Orleans is in the Great Red Sea of Louisiana that we have a should in the population has a very progressive view towards sexual education. And actually, you know, a lot of the uh, private schools, I'm not sure about the parochial Catholic schools, but a lot of the private schools have really wonderful and comprehensive, uh, you know, um, sexual education program. So I think we need to push that further. So I'm going to kind of, I'm going to pick your brain one more time about that. But before we do, let me just say that if you're tuning in, you are listening to NOLA Matters. This is Health is a Human Right. My name is Mark Alderi. I have with us uh, Seth Bloom, who is a former member of the Orleans Parish School Board from 2008 to 2016. He was the president of the Orleans Parish School Board from 2014 to 2016. Seth also ran for city council member and was the first openly gay person to run for city council. He now runs his own law firm uh, known as, which is a uh, I'm sorry bloom legal uh, more information can be found at bloomlegal.com and the focus uh, at the law firm focuses on criminal defense and personal injury Seth also has a podcast called uh, big easy law Seth, just to kind of go back when we were talking about abstinence only versus comprehensive what how I and mean, I'm just again I'm just trying to get a sense of like when folks you know, how does it work when it comes up into the, you know, when, when it comes up and the topics come up and the, the council member, you know, how do, how do you guys navigate it? It, it? I mean, there's eight folks or is it nine folks on seven. the seven? So is it just a constant conversation and, and, and just weaving in and out of just trying to understand kind of putting personal uh, opinions aside or putting, pushing forward or, understanding what the health of the children are you know I, I'm just I'm, I'm curious I can't recall the year but there certainly was a piece of uh, legislation in front of us uh, that was going to it, it did uh, add a more comprehensive sexual education to Orleans Parish students and there really wasn't much controversy about it yeah. everyone was really I'm on shocked. board <laughs> you know, there wasn't you know because okay. I think that and that shows you yes. if I remember it's, you know Ms. <laughs> Ellison made a huge deal over it because that's kind of her that was uh, her thing as my other people the Jewish people say that's her shtick right, kind, right. kind of doing that right. uh, I think one of the other members who who could be a little all over the place she couldn't get her head around the uh, banana condom demonstration that just pushed her over over the line but other than that I think it was a 5-2 or a 6-1 vote so these really weren't they, it, you know it got some press but really everyone was on the same page right. when it came to Does, these kind of things and so this leads to kind of I guess question number two then which is where is you know we've seen this huge charter school movement that actually happened after uh, Katrina um, and when you kind of put your finger up in the air and you kind of feel like where the winds are blowing you know you're we're seeing you know teachers striking all over the country um the la unified school district which is where i went to school uh in uh, growing up in los angeles uh they just want to strike i know that the denver teachers apparently are, are are revving up for a strike and i keep hearing rumbles or rumors that the state of Louisiana may have a teacher strike as well. So a big question, just kind of tapping into your school board expertise, where is the focus of education moving forward, both from a teacher's perspective and, and how teachers are being treated, but specifically also from a student perspective? And as we have seen that we've kind of taken the process of public education and turned them into uh, uh kind of uh, smaller privatized enterprises in the form of, of charter schools? Yeah, um, you know, charter schools are all have always been confusing. Charter schools are one of those issues that you can't really pick where someone is, whether they're for it, against it, on the political spectrum. Um, and, and 
you know, I was always someone that was a little more charter light than a traditional school system, but traditional school systems across the country, and that was a school board that ran the schools 100%, is an old-fashioned approach to running a public school system. And that trend was changing across the entire country. Because we've had such a failed system in New Orleans, before Katrina, already the recovery school district had taken over a bunch of the schools. So when I first got on the board, I think we only had five direct-run schools. Um, as time moved on, we got more back. And then as time moved on, we've moved into a system where every single school is chartered. This is what I say about chartered schools. I mean, if you have a district that is a highly functioning, traditionally run school board district, then leave it alone. You don't need to charter it. But if you have charter schools that are working, leave them alone. And I say that just because something's charter, it's a public school, it's not a private school. And I think there's just a lot of lack of education on what a charter school is. So I'll, I'll try to talk about that. Please, please. For, for a little please, bit. Please, please. Um, charter schools are funded from the same governmental source through the school board, which is the funder of public education in New Orleans. And that would have to be a Louisiana constitutional change. Charter schools are not necessarily better. They can be worse than traditionally run schools. I mean, we saw a recent charter school close down in an epic kind of takedown like three weeks ago, four weeks ago from a, a significant controversy scandal. And I think I think there was some shifting around of monies and maybe that's why they closed down. I don't, I don't know. And I'm not going to name the school because I can't remember exactly, but we've seen some epic schools come down. Charter schools fail in New Orleans. Charter schools fail in Louisiana and all over the country. Sure, sure. I mean, it's I mean, not unique to Louisiana. It's not. And charter schools usually... Uh, you know, they rise and fall based on the leadership and the community. And certainly there's exceptions. So if you have a charter school that's in a fairly affluent neighborhood with engaged parents that can put people on the board and the school system, the people that are actually creating the board for the charter school are competent and have a good mission for the school, then the school's likely to be successful. But if you have poor management of the school, then there's gonna be problems. So the school board under my years there and still continues today, how to become, how to change its model. When I first ran in 2008, everyone was like, we have a bloated central office, bloated central office. And there's a lot of things that the central office does do that people don't realize. Like it, it's the bond uh, raising entity. Uh, it does some of the grant work for even Catholic schools. So there's a lot that it does do and it does need a larger central office than when it, we only had five direct run schools. But we, it became, I think there's only like 90 employees now, and Henderson Lewis did a pretty good job at, at making it a smaller system because the central office now needs to be a more fluid and nimble kind of agency because it's really kind of overseeing all the different fiefdoms of the charter schools, which each have their own boards. So like I said, they kind of go based on how the boards are and how the school structure is. And certainly there's just situations where there's bad luck. But some charter schools are good, others aren't so good, and, and it really goes by the leadership there and the board and uh, what they're trying what their mission is. So when I um, so that's more or less my understanding of charter schools. So so now operating from now we have a common understanding of charter schools. Let me just kind of just 
just ask a couple of questions that are specific to the accountability and transparency then. Because when, you know, again, coming, being a product of, of public health school, a public health school system, public school system in Los Angeles, and then going to a public university at UC, UC California, um, for university, um, that these, these public systems were accountable to a certain degree to voters, right? I mean, just much like the Orleans School Board is, uh, uh, is are, these are elected positions, um, and they run the schools, right? And so when you have these chartered schools, that level of accountability is not there. Um, so that's issue number one. And then also monies that are, that are coming, uh, that are being provided by the state, you know, people are able to create their own rules for that. So teachers, so people can cut corners. And that's my other concern is whereas the, the standards that a, uh, that a school district may, may, um, uh, uh, want, uh, uh, or may determine uh, can get cut from a, a, a chartered school. So I guess I guess when you th- think about both of those, is what we're talking about is accountability. So sure. there's there's a change in accountability to a certain degree. I, you know, I don't know. Accountability is certainly uh, extremely important, but I don't know that accountability goes down with charter schools. It may actually go up. Uh, Certainly, there's audits that we do uh, as a school board or did that, that I took that I took place in and listening to what their principals saying. We also had a third party, and I don't know if it was every year or every other year. I think it's the National Association of Charter Schools, um, who are pretty much the experts on it, and they would go do very intensive audits of these schools and grade them A through F. Right. And we had a set of policies, and I don't remember the exact policies. Sure about continued failing schools and sometimes schools are failing and it's not their fault it's just kind of the the situation the the landscape right you know the 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 hand they were dealt but (coughs) i always really relied on that and because i wasn't i mean i was walking through schools but it's hard to tell because on the other side of the uh, the other side when you talk about traditional models i mean where was the accountability through the prior 30 years before the charter well, movement? And that, and so that leads to this next question, which right. is great, which is where was that accountability and where did that money come from? So when you say schools were failing, I often ask, well, why were schools failing? You know, is it because there just wasn't enough money that was being invested into those schools? And my sense is, if that's the case, where do money for public schools come from? Well, they come from property taxes. Is that correct? Is my understanding correct? And, and yes, if so, yeah, is there a way for us to be able to change that so that property taxes, so that this way there's a budget that that is not this way uh, property taxes so if you're in a in an area that has low property taxes um, you know a, a more vulnerable uh, community versus a community that has higher property taxes where you would have you know you could see right there a large sense of inequity that would exist depending on what part of town you may live in and 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 so I look to that and say well we talk about failing schools that to me seems like that's a reason why there was uh, failing schools. Please, am I am I wrong there? Um, or no. very simplistic, probably. I mean, that's very simplistic. Okay, and also, fair my, enough. My uh, my explanation of charter schools was was awfully simplistic there. 
certainly like a powerhouse in education that's that, fine that worked their whole life in education right uh sarah used it sure, as something could sure. really go into i'm the sure minutia. we would probably getting text messages as soon as we're done so, <laughs> some, some, i hope i hope so uh i hope we get some feedback but you, you know cheating goes on everywhere and i think if we look back to the history of the new orleans school board and it's just abject failures um just so people know, the Orleans Parish School Board in the late 1990s was the second largest budget in the state of Louisiana. So that means only the city of New Orleans' budget was larger than the OPSB. It was bigger than the city budget of Baton Rouge at almost a half a billion dollars. So there was a lot of hanky-panky going on there. There was a lot of cheating. There was a lot of poor management, inefficiency, bad contracts. And I saw that when I was there. I mean, when I was on the board, and I don't need to name any names, in 2012, we had uh, a member had to, leave, had to leave the board and was arrested and was prosecuted and you know went to federal prison for contract problems. So this right. was going on up until 2012 while I was on the board. And one of the frustrating parts about the board was we were trying to hold down the board's accountability right. and certainly within that accountability making sure that no one was doing anything illegal right and you know it's a little bit when you're trying to you know work on making a school system better and you're having to meet with the fbi this certainly isn't sure. demonstrating the leadership sure. or getting the right people in the right places to be making decisions about sure. kids so it shouldn't be so politicized in my view sure so you know i i, I think New Orleans failed because it just didn't take the hard measures that other cities did. And again, you know, New Orleans is a predominantly urban area. Um, it, it has, you know, terrible zoning. There's a lot of issues, especially about our school system, that are not, not unique to New Orleans, that are certainly would be in other urban cities as well, Detroit's of America and stuff like that. So, and I always said, let's look, let's not reinvent the wheel on some of these things, but let's see who are are making these strides. And yes, if you go to Greenwich, Connecticut, and you know, one of the wealthiest uh, you know, cities per capita in America, their public school system's pretty good, and, and probably a lot in California as well. But we, you know, we do have some things to be proud of. I mean, Ben Franklin is a charter school, and it's been ranked a, a one, number one school in the state and nationally ranked. So there are successes. It is selective emission, and we don't want all of that at all of our charter schools. And you know, the application process, one thing that that creates inequity in schools is just parental involvement. And I don't mean baking cookies at the, uh, you know, PTA meeting. I mean, do you know when to register and how to register your, your, your son or daughter? Do you know how to try to get them to the highest performing schools? Well, if you're upwardly mobile, then probably yes. And you're going to have an advocate as a parent that's going to really champion you versus someone that forgot to fill it out. And then you're going to have a school filled with people that's parents you know, forgot to fill out their application till the end. And that, that by itself kind of, you know, creates. Right. Inequity. Inequity. Or, you know, may not necessarily forget to, but also uh, may have several jobs and, and unable to, or maybe not have access to computers. Totally. Or, you know, there's just, there's lots of reasons why, but I agree with you that that, that place all, is an, is spot for inequity. We did all sorts of community reach out to try to develop that. Um, but you know, you can only go so far. It, sure. it shouldn't be. Complete. It was the one app part of that. Yes. And it shouldn't be completely reliable on that. There's a right. number of components. No one's ever going to be happy. Right. Uh, we felt it was at the time the, the fairest way of doing things. Sure. And, uh, I don't know. I haven't looked at the reports this year. I've been at OPSB for a little while. So 
I do, co- you know, I, I, I read all the news on, on what's going on with education, but I don't, sure. I don't always know the, the stats. One, one last question about school and we'll move on. The end byproduct here is how our children faring, right? I mean, we're here to teach kids. Absolutely. So whatever the system is, are we seeing kids, are, are we happy with the outcomes that we're getting? No. Okay. I think we still have a long way to go. We've made improvements. The school board, the school system in 2019 is significantly better objectively than it was a decade ago. Okay, so that's that's a positive thing then, I right? I think so. And in some ways, although Katrina was devastating and displaced people that right. should have been able to come back, in some ways it kind of shook up the city in many ways, but certainly the education system, because of such so many outside influences and people coming down and new resources, building new schools, uh, certainly kind of shed light on the major education problem we had here in the city of New Orleans. Got it. If you're tuning in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV LP FM. This is Nolan Matters. My name is Mark Allen Derry. Uh, today we have on uh, Seth Bloom, who is a former member of the uh, Orleans Parish School Board from 2008 to 2016. He was also president of the Orleans Parish School Board from 20. 20- 14 to 2016, Seth ran for city council uh, uh, this past uh, uh, election cycle and was the first openly gay person to do so uh, for city council. He now uh, runs his own law firm, uh, uh, which is uh, Bloom Legal. More information about Bloom Legal can be found at bloomlegal.com. His uh, law firm focuses and Seth's uh, law uh, interest focus on criminal defense and personal injury. He now has a podcast, which is called Big Easy Law. Um, I guess while we're talking about schools, maybe we can talk about your work with uh, Travis Hill School and the Welcoming Project. Maybe yeah. give us a, let us know about that a bit. Sure. So I talked about it a lot because it was something I was very proud of uh, when I was running for city council, and I still champion this uh, in as many places as I can. So thank you for giving me this forum today to talk on the radio about the Travis Hill School. Um, what the Travis Hill School is, is it is the school within the Juvenile Justice Center and within um, Orleans Parish Prison uh, that educates minors that are both in jail for adult as well as juvenile crime. So back in my last year in 2015 and 16, we identified that there was a major problem. And I'm embarrassed that I didn't find this problem out earlier in my uh, school board tenure. But we had a real problem, and we weren't educating or giving these kids a chance to get back into the school system, to get back into society. So Sarah Usden, because of her vast network of education connections across the U.S., said, who is doing juvenile education the best? And there's a a gentleman, David Demonici, and his organization out of uh, Washington, D.C. We brought them down. He consults and sets up schools. Um, all over the country within prison systems or within jail systems, excuse me. Um, and, and he's fantastic. He, he really is fantastic, and he's, he's got this down. He started it in, in Washington, D.C., and it's been overwhelmingly successful. So we implemented them to start at the new Juvenile Justice Center. So these are 40 kids that are being charged with adult and juvenile crimes that otherwise would be held with no education. So if they get held by held, you mean incarcerated, incarcerated. So if they even if they were though arrested and they're going to be released in a week, well, then they just missed a week of school. Right. So a 15 year old that's being charged for an adult 
crime, let's say, without the educational process that you've established or you helped to establish would just be sitting Monday through Friday without getting any education whatsoever. Basically, there's a small minority of people in this tiny little library with one or two teachers that were trying to get the job done. So that was the entire existence of any program within the juvenile justice system in the entire city of New Orleans prior to 2016 or 17 when things were implemented. Now, and I encourage everyone to take a a trip over there and, and, and tour the facility, I mean, these kids are smart, these kids are motivated, but they're, they, they're given structure and, stru- and they're treated like human beings. So you, you helped to create the school. So what, so what happened? So you basically instituted a school within the uh, juvenile... Uh, Justice Center. Justice Center. And it's been so successful in 2017 that they expanded the program to the kids that were left in Orleans Parish Prison. Uh, so the program now is running in both uh, facilities. So it's it's super exciting, and uh, you see, you see a change. You see these kids get another opportunity. They so have for a, a non legal person like me, a juvenile justice center is a place where people are being held before they're tried to determine whether or not they're ultimately going to end up in the Orleans Parish Prison. Is that well, is that my understanding? Well, you know how or? in the U.S. we build jails better than we build schools? <laughs> and hospitals. And all that kind of stuff. Yes. <laughs> so we built a beautiful juvenile justice center, um, which has all the courts. Um, so if you're in juvenile court, the courts are there, the jail's there, and within that jail is the Travis Hill School. So that's, that's this brand new complex. Juvenile court used to be at Loyola and Poydras in the basement of the civil district court. So now it's moved over there. Been there about two years or so. And it's a lot more pleasant a place to be in jail and, and really gives people an opportunity. And these kids want to learn. I mean, like the bell rings and they go to math class. They come out. Mindfulness is taught. Right. You know, whoa, yeah. you know, progressive stuff like that. These kids meditate. They do breathing right. exercise. And a lot of these 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 children and their children, male and female, predominantly male, have been through such traumatic events in their life that just some mindfulness, some therapy, some love, some structure makes a huge difference. Sure. And they don't give up on anyone. So if if a 16 year old murdered someone and is going to have to go do real time, well, that's OK. Let's let's put that person on a path to a high school diploma. Let's not throw that person away. Maybe they'll write the next uh, American great novel sure. from jail or prison, right. or maybe they'll be out in five years sure. and actually have an education and a skill set to right. reacclimate to, to society. To do something with. So th- that's great. And then the welcoming project. Yeah, and I know you had Sarah on right. uh, a few weeks ago, and Sarah's been a wonderful resource. So David and I couldn't figure out exactly how to engage the community and where there was necessity. David was the, the consultant from yes, Washington. From Washington. And David's mm-hmm. involved. He's down here on a, a monthly basis. And so we, they created the welcoming project, which welcomes people when they leave the facility. Uh, so they go from Travis Hill facility, then uh, they, then they're able to be moved over to the welcoming project, which is like an extension. It's a support center. I right. mean, this is what, you know, th- this is where the real, you know, where the wor- real work, where the is, real work is. This right. saying, OK, Johnny was released after, right. you know, attempted uh, robbery. Right. right. But now. Uh, he has a mentor. So, I mean, I don't want to, you know, toot my own horn, but so is, I'm on the board of the welcoming project trying right. to get people involved. We're going to have um, we're going to have some galas and some more, uh, I guess, publications about it and just some 
you know, just put some energy out there to the community so people know about it. But what it is, is it's basically, you know, people that are involved with the project, leaders are mentoring these kids that are released from Travis Hill. So there's accountability. So you can call them and say, how was your week? You know, do you want to go to a movie? Uh, they get tutored every Tuesday and Thursday night at, at one of the facilities. And these are kids that are out and are back into school. So there's a support system. And that's kind of what the, the welcoming project is. So really right now, we haven't set a date for an event, but we're just doing as much uh, public awareness as we can. And we're going to work on an event, uh, hopefully late this summer. I mean, uh, late this spring, early this summer. So we would love to have you guys back on air to talk about that when, when that happens. I, I think that the work, when Sarah came in and to talk to us about the welcoming project in Travis Hill School. But, but the real we were, ask, and I'm more, I mean, the real ask is we need people. Mentors. We need mentors I'm from the community. Happy to do that. We need people to come down and say, I want to help. Because <coughs> these kids need help. I was talking to right. the juvenile uh, district attorney um, just um, last week, and she said, oh, yeah, three of your Travis Hill kids uh, stole a car and went joyriding and, and crashed it. So they needs to be extended right. support. Right. Well, you know, I, I, let me also say this and we can maybe talk more off air about this, but I got a radio station right here that if people want to learn, radio ain't going nowhere. Right. Like these are skills. These are hard skills on engineering on how to, how to run a station. So, but, um, that's something that we can talk about. Uh, sure. That's something that I would be motivated to be a mentor for. Absolutely. Great. And and, and, and the Welcome Me Project is being morphed and, and other, you know, similar uh, programs have gone on at some of the other schools that they've done. But, you know, mentorship, internships, these are all things that uh, are part of this. You know, there's a this is one point I kind of said to you beforehand. There's tons of worthwhile um causes out there and, and organizations that help these causes like, you know, juvenile justice reform and juvenile education. But tra not just because I'm affiliated with Travis Hill and the Welcoming Project, this is the one that is directly in the jail. This is the one that's directly touches every, ju every juvenile that's arrested in the city. You know, big brother programs can't do that. They're wonderful. Every church group that has a program for, for youth, great. But I'd like to focus more energy and more money and more civic awareness to the program that's actually in that, 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 that has the captive audience. So I'd like to see more churches, more civic leaders, more money kind of people invest in this because right. we, we really have it here. This right. isn't just some charity. Right. Well, I, you know, as I told Sarah and I, I will, I will tell you as well, I think the work that you guys are doing with Travis Hill School as well as the Welcoming Project is, has been amazing um, and uh, is really kind of stands for the core of what this city is and really, like you said, reaching out into the most marginalized or vulnerable communities and really offering the, um, the, the biggest amount of help, uh, the, 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 uh, I mean, an investment in education is completely, it, you can't, it has no monetary value. And it's this was, invaluable. This was kind of my and sweet spot because I'm on the school, I came, I came on the school board with no training as far as education. Uh, my mom was an educator, my aunt was an educator, but I didn't have any background, I, you know, I didn't run any national, uh, right. wasn't a teacher. Uh, but I've learned a lot in eight years in education. I've been a criminal defense lawyer for almost 15 years. So my sweet spot was kind of sure, criminal, right Right. Criminal juvenile justice reform and education. So that's why I feel so passionate about that. I know you wanted to talk a little bit about criminal justice. Right, I, we're going to jump to right next. Yeah, okay. so. <laughs> uh, but.
but I wanted to just let you finish and just also just kind of give accolades to the work that you guys are doing, just to you, to the board, to the executive director, to everybody. Well, well and Sarah and those people are really doing the heavy lifting. I'm just, I'm there to support it and be a champion of it any way I can. I think my biggest contribution was getting it in place and now trying to advocate for it. Please, please, please utilize WHIV as a resource will, for you, you guys. And we will be more than happy to put on PSAs, announcing fundraisers or what have you for you guys. I think that the work that you guys are doing is phenomenal. And also just a slight aside, Travis Hill himself was a trumpet player um, who I think he died uh, in Japan. Is that right? From a tooth abscess, right? Yes. He be had sepsis from a tooth abscess. Mm -hmm. And so I remember that story uh, and being an infectious disease doctor, that was a story that kind of affected me as well because this was somebody that a tooth abscess is something that could easily be, you know, amoxicillin, penicillin. Right. Penicillin. Like twenty five cents a tab. We're gonna go the, into healthcare the, reform now. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Medicare for all is coming, but that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> um, let me uh, say that if you're tuning in, you are listening to one two point three WHIV. My name is Mark Allen Derry. It's really an honor and pleasure to have on my good friend here, Seth uh, Bloom. Uh, Seth, uh, the 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 last uh, ten minutes or so, talking about uh, your your life uh, a bit, and and talking about some of your, your your personal challenges um, and I'm gonna just let you set it up uh, just so that I don't I don't flub through it uh, but I know that um, that this is uh, on public record this has been uh, something that you've been open about and talking about and and I think that it's an important conversation I would say today in my workday today I spent probably three quarters of my workday today managing and dealing with opioid related issues uh, trying to figure out ways of increasing clinic access um, trying to uh, create grants and availability uh, so th this is an issue that is so prevalent and we are truly seeing the tip of, a, of, a, of an iceberg here and so I'm gonna let you just kind of queue up uh, your story and, and a bit of your life yeah, I, when I was ready to run for uh, city council, we knew that uh, my past being someone that had an opioid addiction, and I'm not going to give the exact dates, but it wasn't when I was 18. I, I was well into my career. I was living in New Orleans, and I was a, a highly functioning adult, but I had an opioid addiction. So we weren't sure. We felt that you know a lot of people have addiction problems. Was it going to be relevant in the campaign? And I said, well, for one reason, we knew my opponent was doing push polls about it. But at the same time, you know, I wanted to champion it. I think someone that comes out, I'm always coming out. I don't know what's going on. So, you know, <laughs> come out as gay and say, hey, I'm gay. Come support me. We need more uh, right. you know, LGBTQ people in government. And then I said, you know, we need to really also talk about the fact that if you yourself, if either you yourself has had an addiction of some kind or a loved one, a son, a family member, we hear about people you know, that overdose all the time. So I thought I felt it necessary to come out and really address this. So it wasn't going to be a negative on me, but that would be a way to educate other people. So I was very honest about it. And I, I did a little thing with uh, one of the TV networks here. And I, I, we wrote something and did an interview with the local paper. And I just said that, you know, I understand the devastation of what an opiate addiction can do. Um, there's massive problems with the over prescription of it across the country. But I don't want to also, you know, not talk about the fact that heroin has been such a resurgence around the entire country, especially New Orleans. And as a criminal defense attorney, I see those cases all the time. And that kind of bleeds into, you know, how I feel about criminal justice. And I've always felt as a criminal justice lawyer that people with 
drug problems and addictions should be treated like patients and not prisoners. So it's a public health problem. It's, it's a not major, a criminal justice problem. Right. And there's a lot of places in uh, in in Europe and so forth where people oh, that geez, Portugal does it like nobody's business. And yeah, they, sometimes I mean, they have amazing. places they have like rehab slash like jails kind of. But they're so nice that the people don't leave, but they don't let them leave, even though there's no fence because they need the help. Right. And, and many I mean, obviously, these are. You know, right. These are low, low. These are drug, drug charges. Right. But in this, you know, in this city, if you get caught in the state, in this country, I mean, if you get caught with baggies of heroin, I mean, you're in trouble. If you get caught with with with, uh, you know, oxycodons that aren't prescribed to you and you're a junkie and you need this to function or you're going to get very, very sick and you get busted a couple times because your life's falling apart and you're a target for the police. You know, should you be going to jail for two or five or 10 or 20 years because you have a couple drug felonies? I mean, that happens all the time, not only with with opioids, but, you know, I, I see clients that, you know, have had one or two cocaine convictions over the years. Then five years later, you know, they steal some money or something. And suddenly it's like, whoa, this is a, a multi bill or someone that has multiple felonies. And now they're going to serve this ridiculous amount of, of jail time. And I don't know why I happen to live in the state that has the highest uh incarceration rate in the world but we do and if you know some of the small I mean, some of the low-hanging fruit some of the small adjustments that were even made by bobby jindal or the state legislature the last two years have created have 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 helped i mean we're no longer i think oklahoma has more people incarcerated than we do oklahoma yes i we, mean so we, we felt we, we fell below oklahoma oklahoma didn't surpass us we fell below oklahoma so we'll, 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 there we'll you, take it we'll take it and right. we'll take these but these are such baby yeah, steps they, they were tiny little adjustments but, but you could see these changed you know hundreds if not thousands of yeah people's and then i lives. think senator morell's uh uh bill on uh um the change in the Constitution, Amendment uh, 2, which was the non-unanimous juries, which is something that whenever I tell people about it, people are just like, what? It was like us and Oregon. Yeah, us and only, Oregon. And, and I don't right. know why. Oregon's pretty progressive. Well, no, no, be- no, no, no. It was found by uh, white supremacists. Oh, okay. It was founded by white supremacists, so that was done purposely. Portland, every time I've been there, seems Portland, pretty funky. <laughs> Portland is, it's sort of like, it's like New Orleans in Louisiana. <laughs> but remember, the uh, the Bundy brothers, the guys that like went in and like firearms to like federal police and took over that like federal reserve. Sure. That, hope, that happened on Eastern Oregon. So, I mean, the... Yeah. The eastern part of the state is, is very conservative. My, my sister's in Seattle, and it's the same phenomenon in Washington State. Right. The, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, west, yeah. the west is on the is coast right. is liberal. The east right. is, uh, you know, right, right, right. I guess it's just how that works. So, so so moving forward, I mean, how, I mean, like, what what can we do? I mean, so you uh, having a story, having a, you know, a, a foot in, in the world of addiction and, and, and coming out of it successfully, how do we afford others uh, opportunities of success like that as well? Well, I think uh, developing more programs around the city. Um, they're expanding programs that are always there. Uh, you know, I've been a champion, not as much as I should be, but I've always, you know, worked with the Bridge House and the Grace House. Uh, but, but they only have, you know, so many beds. Their capacity is, is limited. So we've got to really do this from a community standpoint. I'd like to see uh, some federal dollars and state dollars be earmarked for it. Um, and, and it's just something that we have to, you know, I mean, what were the statistics last year with opiate deaths? Seventy-two thousand in the country, and, you, and it's more than car accidents now. Yeah, or? well, it was it was more we were in New Orleans. We have more opioid overdoses than gun violence, uh, and seventy-two thousand the year before that was sixty thousand. So it went up by like 
fifteen percent or twenty five, twenty percent. And this is a, you know it crosses all so socioeconomic all lines. Right. I've known people. I, I think I know three people that have died of heroin overdoses. I mean, a friend of mine's brother in Ohio, which has been devastated. Uh, I, I, someone, two different acquaintances that I knew here in town, and these were people that were, you know, they were you know, one was affluent, one was a someone that worked in the. Uh, Restaurant industry, like I said, it crosses all socioeconomic lines. It's very dangerous. Uh, there's no regulations of any of the you know street drugs. You never know what you're taking, um, and then the proliferation of the pills. Right. You know. So one of the you know one of the the, the number one reason why people are actually dying, and, and this is starting to get into kind of my world. Like I said, I literally spent three quarters of my my work day today dealing with this. So why is an infectious disease doctor dealing with, with opioids? Well, one is that HIV, for the most part, I, I don't want to say we've kind of shut the book on HIV, but we have definitively made huge strides forward then, you know, if I had known in the in the 80s when I was growing up and I was watching my dad take care of people living with HIV and AIDS, people were dying all around us. If I had known that I was going to grow one, I, you know, never say never because one day you're going to look in the mirror and realize you've become your father. Right? <laughs> so, like, but if, if, you know, if I had known that 30 years later, I'd be able to be like, wow. Worth like that's it, Big Harvey. You know, like one pill once a day, prep, Truvada. You know, right. you're able, we're able to prevent uh, HIV. If I had known that, that was gonna, be, I, I would have never believed that th thirty years ago. And so we're, you know, now we now we're at U equals U. Are you are you familiar with U equals U? This I'm messaging. Not. So let me tell you, U equals U is undetectable viral load equals untransmittable virus. Right. So if your viral load is at levels that are undetectable, in other words, when you come into the clinic and and uh, I test you for your, your viral load, which is I do every time somebody comes in the clinic to see me for refills on their meds or for their checkups or whatever, people living with HIV. If their viral load is undetectable, which is the best that could ever be, they're not going to be able to transmit virus to their intimate partners. And I think that's something and, that people don't know. I think people, probably the gay community, uh, gay, especially gay men, know that a little bit. Yes. But I think the education, the campaigns for PrEP around town, I'm 100% supporter of that. And it's not only for the PrEP to prevent people, but like you said, taking the medications and staying at an undetectable level um, prevents, you know, almost... All yeah. transmission. Yeah, yeah. All and this transmission is your world, not mine. Yeah. You're the expert, but, but I know a little bit about it. Yeah. So what, what I was getting to is that while HIV at this point, you know, a lot of HIV docs like myself are starting to move over into, well, I mean, so what is the, the next infection that's associated with uh, IV drug use and opioids and, and, and heroin is obviously hepatitis C. And we're at a place now where we can actually cure hepatitis C. And, and the, 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 uh, the rising uh, cases, uh, caseloads of, of hepatitis C that we've seen matches perfectly the increase in the usage of opioids 100% and so we're seeing this huge increase in in hep C cases uh, and Louisiana, unsurprisingly, one of the number one states for the highest level of hepatitis C cases in in the country per capita, of course. I mean, when you when you adjust it to population uh, here, and when you look at the Medicaid population, it's significantly disproportionately. I think just higher. like we talked about charter schools, you know, access and education plays a major role in this. So being able to get to the vulnerable community, drugs that can prevent HIV is so important, and then to pivot over to the opiate uh, issue 
people being able to be treated, uh, to be able to go through withdra withdrawal in a proper way and be treated and tapered off and then be able to, you know, given the medications. I mean, there's medications out there now that you can take a shot once a month and it will block all opiate. Um, yes, Vivitrol, I Vivitrol. think it's called. Right. So there's Vivitrol, but Vivitrol is very expensive. Yes, yes. Uh, and then there's other things, uh, you know, Suboxone, Subutex, and, and then and people have, there's different, doctors have different philosophies on those because some of those products do have opiates in them. But support groups, these sort of transitional medications, uh, they save lives, they keep people alive. And that was what I spent my day today doing was trying to create some of these clinics around town uh, because I, I, you know, what I was trying to drill down to with the folks I was working with all day today was essentially for every Suboxone prescription that's given monthly, how many lives does that save over a period of time? And, you know, and there's there's technical aspects associated with that and why I was asking that question. But we do know that these medications and these drugs uh, work. Uh, and we do know that, the, excuse me, the importance of having programs available to do that. And I think moving forward, I think the city council last year uh, um, passed a law uh, with the state that made needle exchanges legal. Um, of Huge course. Proponent. Yeah. And uh, and then moving forward, I think we're going to start seeing um, uh, we're going to start seeing uh, uh, places uh, and it just slipped my mind. Opioid uh, prevention. Jeez, uh, I can't believe it. this is where we, they're in Vancouver. They're in Portland. They're I'd help you out, but I don't know what you're in Portugal. About. Yeah, these are areas. <laughs> these are um, I can't. I just spaced on it. This is areas where people are able to go in and actually use IV drugs right. in a safe uh, in a yeah. in a safe space. And certainly, and, there's a lot. I mean, you know, how is the criminal justice system going to handle that? Who's going to? Is someone going to make the drugs accessible there? Right. Yeah. yeah there's, there's so many questions around it. But you know, when people are dying, right. When there's we a, have to do something. You have to do something, and sometimes these things have to be done radically. Right. You know, we dealt Absolutely. with this problem once before. Right. Before my time in the '60s and '70s. Right. I mean, I remember my dad telling about a friend of his that used to go get methadone, right. and I know methadone's still used. But right. you know, you're the doctor. You understand. Right. I mean, but think about treatment, HIV was the same way, man. Right. I mean, we did. We sat on HIV and we let a jet leagues and leagues thousands and thousands and thousands of men die and not just men but mostly you right. know and 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 why because we just we refuse to kind of open our eyes and we do need to do something radical and i will say this that your voice and 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 your stature in the community it's it's important to hear a voice like yours to say words like what you're saying and i really do appreciate it well, thank you. I appreciate it. Seth Bloom, former member of the board of the Orleans uh, Parish School Board from 2008-2016. Uh, former uh, school board uh, uh, president 2014-2016. Seth also ran openly, uh, Seth also ran for city council member and was the first openly gay person to do so. He now is uh, runs his law firm, uh, Bloom Legal. More information can be found at bloomlegal.com. And he focuses on criminal defense and personal injury. He also has his own podcast called Big Easy Law, uh, and uh, he also is on the board for the Travis Hill School and the Welcoming Project. Thank you for all of your uh, insights today, Seth. Thank uh, you so much for having pleasure. me on, Doc. Thank you so much, and uh, Resistance Radio will be coming up uh, right up next. So thank you so much, and just stay tuned. Thank you.